This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you are forever the Holy Trinity, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by your love, you created and are redeeming everything that is. We pray that you would open our eyes and loose our tongues, that we might see and confess always your love. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, as we look around us today, we see a sea of confusion, violence, anxiety, fear, and tremendous pain. For almost the whole of 2020 so far, our year has been defined by wave after wave of crisis and tragedy. The first mighty breaker of the coronavirus came in February, and with it the sudden shock of being in complete isolation from one another and the shuttering of all non-essential businesses and nonprofits, including our places of worship. We were and we are still mourning this. We're mourning that we all have to wear masks when we see each other. The Christian tradition has always said that the face is the site of interpersonal communion so that we cannot help but feel loss and diminishment at this. And we had not yet adjusted to that reality by being leveled by the next wave, the savage economic, social, and psychological effects of the coronavirus, job loss, income loss, decimation of retirement accounts, ballooning debt, widespread anxiety, fear, depression, mental health crises, rising suicide rates. We haven't even been able to process that wave before we were put face to face with the most formidable wave so far. Reckoning with our country's long legacy of racialized violence and the murders of Ahmad Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And these events have focused attention once more on the disparities of experience between white and minority Americans. It's focused attention once more on the fact that white and minority Christians in this country have different experiences of and assessments of America's history. We've been reminded that our churches are often places that contribute to further estrangement of the black and white communities in America and to reconciliation of them. We're invited, we're exhorted, we're urged in the strongest possible terms by our brothers and sisters of color to hear and to see the suffering of the black community, to see that there is comprehensive and systemic racism in our society that cannot be fixed through individualistic solutions. The need has been put before us not simply to engage in the work of racial reconciliation, but also anti-racist work, work to dismantle structures and ideas that are racially charged. This is a paradigm shift for most white Christians. This is a painful adjustment that has been and is being resisted. And we need to acknowledge that the pain of this transition, which is necessary and which is righteous, is part of what makes for so much anger and so much anxiety in our society today. Now this Sunday, the Sunday after Pentecost, is in our calendar called Trinity Sunday. It's the Sunday every year which we devote to the exposition and defense of the doctrine that although we worship one God, that God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this year, I'm betting, many of us are wondering what possible relevance the doctrine of the Trinity can have as we're staggering under the weight of so many evils. 
What possible use is it to devote time and attention to the fact that the God that we worship is a trinity in unity and a unity in trinity? But this morning I want to tell you in the strongest possible terms that only the triune God can help. Only the God who, as St. Hilary said in the fourth century, is one God but not a solitary God, is there hope. There's only hope in the one God who is also three persons for communion between those who are at enmity with one another. Only in the God who is forever, whoever, who forever has been and forever will be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is there hope that love and personhood and dignity and justice are stronger cosmic forces than the demonic forces of oppression and rancor and suspicion and envy. Only in the God who has really come to us in the person of the Son and who has given fellowship with himself through the Spirit in the church is there any hope that there is a grace which envelops us and makes possible true repentance, sacrificial and costly restitution, and true reconciliation. The Trinity is a most practical doctrine in a world that is teeming with horrors. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says it this way, there is no aspect of the Christian message that is not in part an answer to the question of evil. The heart of the Christian message is the proclamation that the God who always has been and always will be love itself has come bursting into the prisons that we have created for ourselves in our rebellion against him. One of the greatest falsehoods of the modern age is the illusion that we can solve our own problems. Sociology has replaced theology for many as the hope of our world. And sociology is a very helpful discipline. It can help us expand what Michael Emerson calls our cultural toolkits as we begin to grapple as Christians with the fact that racism is not just a problem of personal animus, but it infects institutions and ideational structures. But sociology detached from theology is just ideology. Ideology makes prideful and puffed up and censorious people. We cannot seek true justice from a prideful posture. Now, biblical justice or biblical righteousness, and they are the same word in Scripture, sedekah in Hebrew and dikaiosune in Greek, is a relational category. It is being in right relationship with those around you and with the Lord. And we're learning, I hope, that there are both personal and corporate dimensions to this biblical justice. But it is God who establishes the dimensions of justice. And it is God who transforms us so that we both embody that justice and seek that justice. This is actually St. Paul's argument in Romans 3. No nation, no people, and no individual can be righteous before God. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In our context, let's translate it this way. Black, white, Native American, Latino, Asian, all have fallen short and all are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. We are justified. That is, we are declared by God to be righteous by his grace. But then God actually transforms us so that we can become like what we are declared to be. And God does this, St. Paul says, so as both to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. If we only have the diagnosis that sin permeates everything, hearts, minds, relationships, and institutions, but we don't know the cure, 
which is being set on a new footing with God and with each other through the justification which Jesus has secured for us, we cannot be agents of God's reconciliation. We are not just, and we are not capable of justifying ourselves by what we do. Only God can justify, and only God can transform. And therefore, we must always be theologians before and after we are sociologists. To be a theologian does not mean to be someone who has read a lot of books about God. It means to be someone who has been transformed from the inside out by a life of devotion to the triune God. We must be transformed in the core of who we are by the renewing of our minds, by the contemplation and adoration of the Trinity and unity and the unity and Trinity so that we can be people who are secure enough to seek and to display true justice. In the third century, St. Irenaeus said that the Son and the Holy Spirit were the two hands of the one God, through which God made us and through which he scoops us up and restores us to right relationship with each other and with the Father. He gathers us in with his hands, Irenaeus says, like wheat that's being gathered in during the harvest. This is a most worthy way for us to think about the Trinity. The Trinity is not a perplexing mathematical or metaphysical game, somehow trying to get three to equal one. The revelation of the Trinity happens as an extension of and an elaboration upon Israel's God that happens within the Christian community as it encounters that God in the person of Jesus Christ. As the church experiences Jesus' victory over death and the resurrection, as it experiences Christ's exaltation to the right hand of the Father in the ascension, as it experiences the fire of the Spirit in Pentecost, its worship leads it to affirm that somehow Son and Spirit are both God, but personally distinct from the Father. In Christ, whom the Father sent for our redemption, and in the Spirit, who gives us fellowship with the Father by diffusing the work of Christ upon the hearts of all who have faith in Him, God grabs a hold of us and begins a work of renewal in us by sharing His divine life with us. He involves us then in the divine work of redemption, helping Him to renew the face of His creation. St. Paul reflects on this. He uses the most sacred prayer of Israel, the Shema, to express how this can be. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But he inserts Jesus into it. There is one God, says 1 Corinthians 8, 6, through whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And Christians have been worshiping Jesus in the Spirit since the day of Pentecost, from the very first moment that the Spirit was sent among them to empower them to be the body of Christ in the world. It's precisely because they look at Jesus and they see the Father that they begin to worship Jesus. And it is because they worship Jesus that they find it right to call Him the Lord God. Somehow there is personal differentiation in the Godhead at the same time that there is shared divine essence. This is challenging to express in any other way than in the language of adoration and worship. And that's why it emerges in the formulas we see here at the doxology at the end of 2 Corinthians or in the baptismal formula that Jesus himself gave us in Matthew 28. It's a reality that is meant to be experienced far more than to be articulated. And that's why I think that Irenaeus' description of it commends itself to us. 
All of us know if we have spent any time living the Christian life, how desperately we need to be rescued by the hands of God, scooped up by God and completely reordered by Him in mind and body and spirit and relationship to each other in our communities, in the created order. Irenaeus develops that language of the Son and the Spirit, actually, by meditating on Paul's descriptions of what the Son and the Spirit do in the redemption of the world. He says that the hands of God are the antidote of life to the death that has infected our humanity, restoring us to full communion with God. And in our passage from 2 Corinthians today, Paul gives us this theology in a compressed liturgical form in the concluding doxology. He says in this concluding formula, which is familiar to all Anglican Christians, because we say it a lot at the end of morning prayer, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Most scholars think that when St. Paul put it in his letter, it was not invented for that occasion, but it was already a liturgical formula that was well known to the Corinthians. And certainly, as I said, it continues to be that for us today. We say it almost every day in morning prayer. But it became a liturgical formula for the Corinthians because it expresses so profoundly the truth of the Trinitarian shape of Christian experience. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is an expression that occurs time and again in almost all the Pauline letters. The word grace in Greek is charis. And the proper translation of that word is really gift. The biblical scholar John Barclay says that when we see this, this, this phrase, what it should call to mind is how in and through the person of the Son, God gives himself up for us to cleanse us from our sins and to raise us up in righteousness, in right relationship with the Father and with each other. God gives us the gift of reconciliation and communion with himself through the gift of Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear when God gives himself in this way, who we were before Christ came to us dies. And we take on Christ's life instead. The life that we live in our bodies now in light of Christ is fundamentally other than who we were. Now this is shocking language, but he says it straightforwardly in Galatians 2. Listen to what he says. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He was himself the gift for me. He then goes on to say that if we do not live now as Christ, in other words, as Christ would live if he were in my culture and in my circumstances, we set aside his gift or his grace for us. Here's what he says. I do not set aside the chorus the gift or the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained by any other means, then Christ died for nothing. For Paul, the meaning is clear. If there is no grace or gift of Christ, then there is no righteousness. Only through God's gift of himself in Christ does the just one justify us. For Paul, the implication of this is clear. If we've been justified, we will live a life not of self-justification before God and other people, but the life that has been made possible by the gift, so that we do not set the gift aside. This is the theology that is packed into that expression, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then says in this formula that the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ displays and draws us into the love of God the Father. 
St. Paul here draws us to something in that compressed statement that we should pause with for a moment because it has been so tragically misunderstood, especially in recent years. There are some ways of talking about the work of the Trinity and salvation in which what the Son does is divided from the work of the Father. The Father becomes this distant, estranged, angry figure who needs to be placated. And so to make this possible, the Son agrees to take the sin of the world upon himself and accept the wrath that was owing to everyone else. Some modern theologians who have accepted this view of things have described it as divine child abuse. This view of the work of salvation is sometimes called the heresy of subordinationism. It is to separate the work of the Son from the work of the Father. But St. Paul doesn't let us think this way. What the gift, the self-donation of Jesus Christ displays is precisely the love of the Father. Only because the heart of the Father is an eternal, flaming love that never stops pursuing us, that refuses to let the barriers that we erect to communion with Him through our sin be the last word for us. Only because the Son shares that love of the Father does the Son become incarnate in order to reconcile us to God. The work of the Trinity is one because all three persons of the Trinity participate fully in the divine nature. Now let's look at that last phrase of Paul's formula, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It is through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we are given communion with God himself. The NRSV captures it by by actually translating that phrase, communion with with God. It is the diffusion of work, the work that Christ has done with us, done for us. The work work of God is no longer concentrated in Israel, but it is dispersed throughout the nations. And it is that work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. The Holy Spirit implants us into the divine life. The Holy Spirit makes us carriers of the divine life so that we may live the life that emerges from the gift, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Paul's benediction over the Corinthians and over us is that the fellowship that exists forever between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and through which all things were made and through which all things are being redeemed would be with us evermore. This is the only hope of the world. The only hope of the world is that the invincible love that made everything is the invincible love that will triumph over everything. Only if we believe that, only if we hold fast to that confession, can we actually say in all sincerity with Dr. King that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Only if we have been set on a new footing by being rescued, gathered up like wheat in the harvest by the Son and the Spirit and reconciled with the Father, are we safe enough to reckon, to reckon with how deeply sin has marred us and marred our society? My friends, that is the key. Is your identity secure through your reconciliation to the Father? As the one who is righteousness himself declared you righteous, As the one who is righteousness, making you new into that righteousness. Can you trust that the painful work of making you as a person and us as a church as righteous as we have been declared to be for your good and not for your destruction? Only if we can answer those questions can we look seriously at the abyss of sin. Only if you can trust the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit can we reckon with the full dimensions of sin. In a world that is dominated by that sin and by death, common sense morality is self-defensive. You take care of your own because no one is coming to rescue you. You have to fend for yourself. 
The only justification of what you do is the good that it secures for you and for yours. The righteousness that the kingdom demands only makes sense if we have been united into one body through one Lord, through one Spirit. Biblical righteousness is not common sense. It's what makes sense in the kingdom of God when we have been justified by God and raised into new life with Him. And that's why St. Paul says over and over again to his correspondents in various ways, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul says because you have been justified, you are safe in the love of God. And it's only on that basis alone that we don't think about what's good for us. We think about what's good for our brothers and sisters. It's on this basis that he says here in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, to seek full restoration and to be at peace with one another. In Paul's longest meditation on Christ's gift to us in Philippians, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ or any comfort in his love or any fellowship in the Holy Spirit, then make my joy complete by being in unity with one another and being of one spirit and of one mind. And I want you to notice really quickly at the beginning of that passage in Philippians 2, it's almost the exact same formula that he gives us here at the end of 2 Corinthians. This is a big deal for Paul. This is the whole basis of the Christian life for him. He goes on to say, on the basis of what the Trinity has done for you, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but humbly regard others as better than yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is, of course, happening on a personal level all the time in the body, but the Bible also shows us what it looks like when it happens at a communal level. Consider Acts 6, when the disciples are increasing in number, and the Hellenists cry out against the Hebrews that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles, who see that the body is composed of both Hebrews and Hellenists, in order to ensure fairness in the distribution, elect seven deacons. And all of those seven deacons have Greek names. They're all Hellenists. They're drawn, in other words, from the people who have been offended to ensure that the needs of that community within the body are being listened to and are being attended to. And our African-American brothers and sisters are crying out to us. It is incumbent upon us to consider the needs of their community even more than the needs of the white community in which we are involved. Because that's what it means to belong to one body. Father Esau Macaulay, a black ACNA priest, said this week that the price for community with African-Americans is participation in both our joys and our struggles. The struggles of the black church need to be the struggles of the white church too. But only if the gift of Jesus Christ and its diffusion among us by the Spirit is true does this make any sense at all. If we're trying to reckon with the racialization of American society and the American church with our own resources, then there's absolutely no hope. Reconciliation doesn't make any sense. Mutual hostility and recrimination is what makes sense. But if we see that through the two hands of God we have been scooped up and brought in safety by God into divine life, then we can be non-defensive. We can value the needs of others more highly than those of ourselves because we're safe. We know that we will also be taken care of. We know that we will also be seen too. God doesn't show favoritism, but he assures us that if we live out of the gift that has been given to us in Christ, we will also be cared for. 
That's the good news of the gospel. Only the triune God can help. Worship the Trinity in unity and the unity in Trinity. And let the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit fill all of our hearts today. We can do this really practically by receiving Christ and his Holy Eucharist by the power of the Spirit. So let God embrace you today in the Eucharist. Repent and believe the good news. Amen.